0: I'd invite you to take your Bibles again and turn with me to the book of Revelation. If the Bible's not something that's familiar to you, it's it's an easy passage to find today. We're actually looking at the very last book in the Bible, Revelation, and our passage is in chapter 3, which you'll find on pages on page 1029 if you'd like to use the red Bibles around you. <coughs> continuing to look at these various letters that were recorded in the book of Revelation that Jesus wrote. Jesus gave uh, to his servants, to his angels, to John, uh, to these various churches in the area that we refer to today as Turkey, and today we come to the letter that was written to the church in the town of Sardis. I encourage you to listen as I read to you the first six verses of chapter 3. And repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, And before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work that we might hear what you would have us to hear today. Wake us up. Wake us up from our spiritual slumber and help us to see wonderful truths from this portion of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Margaret Halcrow was the daughter of Danish and Scottish nobility from a very small island just off the coast of northern Northern, uh, Scotland. Uh, She lived in the mid to late 17th century. In 1674, she married... The Reverend Henry Erskine, who was a pastor in the Church of Scotland, a Presbyterian minister in Scotland. Uh, Shortly after they were married in 1674, Margaret began to become sick. And over a period of time, people tried to figure out what was going on with her and various kinds of treatments. And many things were tried. But eventually, she got worse and worse and was pronounced dead shortly after her marriage began. Henry, although they had been married only a short time, loved Margaret deeply and grieved her death. He decided that he was going to bury her with some very valuable family jewelry that they had, including a very valuable ring that would be put on her finger. The village carpenter was a man named John Carr. And not only was he the village carpenter, he was also a a sort of funeral director, if you will. So John Carr not only built the coffins and dug the graves, but he actually buried the people as well. John had noticed the incredible, valuable jewelry that was being being buried with Margaret. And so as the funeral was drawing to a close and the coffin was lowered into the grave and it became the time that the dirt would be put on uh, the coffin, John, not being very honest in and of himself, suggested to the family since it was getting dark that they go ahead and leave and that he would finish uh, the burying process. And Henry and his family left at that point and went home. And John began to then get into the grave and began to remove the lid of the coffin so that he could take the jewelry. After all, he figured she's not going to need it anymore. He took the necklaces and the various pieces of jewelry. But when he came to the ring that was on her finger, the prize jewel that she had in the coffin, he couldn't get the ring off of her finger And so he took a knife out of his back pocket and he began to amputate her finger. And as the blade was put onto her finger and pressed into her flesh, Margaret woke up. She had been in some kind of deep coma, and the pain that was caused because of the knife being pressed into her finger woke her up from the coma, and she stood up in the coffin you'd imagine, John was quite startled and he jumped out of the grave and ran for his life. Margaret didn't know exactly what was going on, but she stumbled her way out of the grave and she stumbled her way all the way back to her house and knocked on the door and the maid of the house opened the door and immediately fainted. <laughs> eventually they brought Margaret into the home and she was nursed back to complete health and she went on shortly thereafter to become the mother of Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine two significant instruments of revival and spiritual renewal in England excuse me in Scotland and with impact here in the United States as well now I want to imagine if we could speak with that Carpenter John Carr. I would imagine that he would tell us the moral of the story, at least from his perspective. Appearances can be deceiving. And in essence, that's what Jesus is saying to us this morning here in this passage, is it not? As we hear about this church in Sardis. Although the appearances deceiving are kind of in reverse from how Margaret Halcrow's story unfolded. Here we have a church that Jesus says has a reputation for being alive. But they are actually dead. They look good on the outside. They look vibrant. They look full of vitality. But on the inside, they are dead. And so Jesus writes a letter to them to address it. Now, I will say that I am thankful and I am greatly encouraged that I don't believe that Jesus would write this letter to our church. I don't believe that Trinity Presbyterian Church is a dead church, and that is purely and solely and completely by God's grace and goodness alone. So you might wonder... Why do we need to listen to what Jesus is telling this church in the first century? I think there are several reasons. The first is, no church is immune from what happened to the church in Sardis. It can happen to any church if they fail to be watchful. I think another reason is that all of us in this room have a tendency to either compromise on truth in order to get people to accept us and like us and love us. Or we will compromise on being loving in order to be stalwarts of the truth. We can compromise on truth to have people want to be around us and to like us and to get more people in the doors. And we can compromise on being loving to make sure that everybody's upset with us, because then we know we must be holding to the truth. And Jesus says that both of those compromises are problems. Another reason we need to hear this letter is because we need to make sure that we're not putting more of an emphasis on the on our outward obedience than the inward condition of our hearts. Whether that's with our children, or with ourselves, or with our church. And one last reason why we need to read and understand what Jesus is telling this church is because we want the gospel promises that Jesus gives to this church and the people within the church at the end of his letter. So today, let's look at three things. First of all, the problem that Jesus points out, and then let's look at the prescription that Jesus provides and then the promises that Jesus gives to them. So first of all. What's the problem that Jesus points out? Well, we've already mentioned it. Uh, in our, we already mentioned it already. It's at the beginning or the end of verse 1. Jesus says to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You look good to the people outside. You're thought well of. You are respected in the community of Sardis. You appear healthy, you are flourishing, the church may even have been growing. There's lots of activity, lots of ministry taking place. But Jesus says it's all for show. It's not real, it's not true. And on the inside there is death. There is not the life of the Spirit. He goes on at the end of verse 2 to say that I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. The word complete there means full or filled up or brought to completion. We know from various sources, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture, that this was a church that in many ways was blending into the, the society, the culture of Sardis. They're busy with all kinds of external activities of the church they're even living lives of good works but it's empty of true spiritual power and life their obedience and good works are born out of love for God or not born out of love for God and for neighbor they're not in response to God's gospel of grace and Jesus tells them at the beginning of verse 2 wake up They are spiritually asleep, they are not alert, they are lazy and lethargic in their spiritual lives. It's helpful for us at this point to understand a little bit of the history of the geography and the the history of this particular town. This town, Sardis, was a, a town that was built... On the hill of a a mountain, of a small mountain, a, a hillside. And there were two parts to the town. The first part of the town was down at the base of the mountain. That was the place where the marketplace was, where people would come and go and where goods would be traded and sold. But the second part of the city was built up onto the hill, up onto the side of the mountain. And it was thought that the city of Sardis, particularly that top part where the king's palace was located, where all of the the government was held, it it was thought that that part of the city was unassailable. It could never be defeated. It could never be conquered. And they were largely correct in that. There's record of a number of attempts of trying to conquer the city over its history. And almost every single time when the assault came face on to the city, it failed. However, in 546 BC, Cyrus the Great from Persia attacked Sardis. And in the context of the battle, one of his soldiers noticed some of the citizens of Sardis climbing up into the top part of the city. And word began to spread. And under the cover of darkness of night, Cyrus's army began to scale to the top part of the city. The people of Sardis were so sure, they were so certain that they could never be conquered, that they didn't even worry about putting watchmen on the wall. There was no one there to watch to make sure that nobody could get in. And indeed, Cyrus's army did, and the city was conquered. And then 300 years later, exactly the same thing happened again, when the city was once again conquered under the cover of night, as people secretly came into the city and took over. This was a city that knew its own history of falling asleep and not paying attention and being conquered as a result. And so Jesus is telling them, wake up. Not because there is some enemy at your door that's going to conquer your city, but the evil one himself is at your door. What Jesus was telling them would have connected with them. He tells them in verse 4 that he knows that there's some in their city that had not yet soiled their garments. And so by implication, we know that part of the problem was that these people of the church and of the city of Sardis had soiled their garments... They had settled into a life of being comfortable and blending in, of not offending anyone. They clearly were not proclaiming the gospel and the truth of the gospel. That's likely why Jesus doesn't mention false teachers or persecution happening in this place. Satan wasn't concerned about this church. There was no need to send false teachers or persecution their way because he was quite content to just let them be their self. Michael Horton in his book Christless Christianity asks a a question about what it would look like if Satan took over a city. If God allowed Satan to have complete run of a city, what would it look like? And Horton in his book says we can imagine what that might look like. We, we would think of mayhem on a massive scale of widespread violence, deviant sexual behavior, pornography in every vending machine, churches that are forced to close down and Christians that are dragged off to City Hall. But Horton then quotes from one of his own mentors, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who over 50 years ago was pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. And Barnhouse gave a very different picture of what it would look like if Satan never took control of an American town. This is what Barnhouse said. All the bars and the pool halls pool halls would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine city streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smile and say hi to each other. There would be no swearing. Kids would answer with a yes ma'am or a no sir. And churches would be full every Sunday, but Christ would not be preached. Isn't that an interesting picture of what it would look like if Satan were to take over a town? We think of there being all kinds of deviant and rebellious behavior. But what Barnhouse was helping us to see was that in reality, what, G- what Satan is most concerned about is that Jesus Christ is not preached and proclaimed. As the Savior and as the truth. This was the problem in Sardis. They looked really good on the outside, but on the inside they were dead. They had a Christless Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. Now, before we begin to look at the prescription that Jesus gives them, I want us to reflect just for a moment on how easy it is to become lazy and lethargic and to fall asleep. Think of how Barnhouse described a city taken over by Satan. And how many of us, at least for a moment, would think, boy, that sounds really good. Except for that last part of Christ not being preached, if we could get to that point, we would all be really happy. And I wonder how many of us are tempted to want that more than we want Christ to be preached faithfully, and completely from His churches. At times we might implicitly think this way. If we could just get a life that looked like that, we wouldn't need Christ preached. We put the focus and the importance and the emphasis more on outward obedience than hearts that have been gripped and changed by the gospel of God's grace and mercy. And when we do, we're no different than these people in Sardis. So, what's the prescription? What is the prescription that Jesus gives to them? He tells them the prescription in verse 2, beginning of verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, I want to stop and get you to think about this because this should seem a little confusing. Jesus has just said that they were dead. That's what he said in verse one. And yet here in verse two, he's calling them to wake up and to strengthen what is about to die. So which is it? What's going on? This church in Sardis was filled with a majority of people who may have made a profession of Christ at some point, but you couldn't tell. There was no evidence. They were living off their reputation on the, of the past. And there was no evidence of true internal spiritual life. And Jesus looked at this church as a church and considered it dead. But at the same time, Jesus also knows that there are some people, some individuals in that church who were genuine believers. They were Christians. They were his people, but they were on life support. And so he tells them, wake up. And notice he tells them how. Notice the prescription that he gives for how they are to wake up. He gives them three commands, three imperatives in verse 3. Remember then, he says, what you received and heard. Isn't that interesting? The first prescription for these dead and almost dead people in this church is to remember. Remember what? To remember what you have received and heard. Now that little phrase, what you have received and heard, is used a number of times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it refers to the gospel. Jesus is saying to them, wake up. And the way you wake up, the first thing you do is to remember the gospel. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. Remember who He is and what He came to do. What He accomplished on the cross. The Gospel is not something that we just tell unbelievers about. It is something that every single Christian must hold on to. We ought to spend time reading about the gospel and the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's a story about God's redeeming love for his people. It's a story about his pursuit. It's a story of the gospel. We ought to read books about the gospel. We ought to listen to sermons about the gospel. We ought to saturate our minds and our hearts with the truth of the gospel. And by the way, do you know that one way we try to help you do that is at least three times every Sunday, we are rehearsing the gospel. We're telling each other the gospel. Our service itself, the actual order of the service walks us through the gospel as we think about who God is and his majesty And His holiness. And as we come face to face with that, we we enter into a time of confession and repentance. And then as we emerge from that time of confession and repentance, we are reminded of the assurance of God's grace for all who are in Christ Jesus. And we respond by singing and giving to to the Lord. But Sunday is not enough. Every single day, we must remember the gospel. We must put things into our lives That will cause us and force us to stop and to remember the gospel. That's the first prescription that Jesus gives them. The second is not only are they to remember it, but he says, keep it. Isn't that interesting? How do you keep the gospel? Well, the key there is understanding this word keep. It really means to keep in view. To take note of. To watch carefully, to pay attention to, to keep holding on to and to not let go of. He is telling his people, remember the gospel and hold on to it as if your very life depends on it because it does. There's more than just knowing what the gospel is. There's more than just remembering the gospel. We are called to believe the gospel and to keep believing the gospel. Even in those moments when it is hard for us to do so. In those moments when we are tempted to give up. Because life's circumstances are so difficult. He says, remember, wake up, remember the gospel and keep it. Keep on holding to it. And then the third thing that he gives them as a prescription, to remember, to keep it, and then to repent. What is repentance? Literally, the word means to change your mind. It is to turn away from something that is wrong and to turn towards something that is right. Uh, We... Read earlier in our service that confession of faith from the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 76. And there the Westminster Divines wrote about the idea of repentance being a work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that causes us to hate, to be grieved over our sin, to turn away from it, and to turn to the Lord for our forgiveness and with an intention of walking with Him in obedience. That's not something that we do just once. That's something we are meant to do every single day of our lives. In a sense, we ought to be doing it every moment of our lives. Every time our sin is brought to our attention. And even when it's not, we ought to be living lives of repentance. This is the prescription that Jesus gives. This is the solution to the spiritual lethargy and death That the people in Sardis were experiencing. He's calling them to do these three things over and over and over again. And Jesus knows that it's hard. And it's difficult to do it consistently and faithfully. And how prone we are to give up. And so he ends his letter with these wonderful promises. These wonderful gospel promises to encourage and motivate them to persevere to the end. What are the promises that he gives them? They're in verses four and six, four through six. The first one's at the end of verse four. He tells them that he knows that there are still a few in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and notice what he says: they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white. Garments. There are references throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, to this idea of wearing white or having white robes or white garments. And in all of those references, it is a, a specific reference to a status of purity and holiness and righteousness and worthiness. Now, that's what he says in verse four. They will walk with me in white. Why? Because they are worthy. They will be clothed in white because they are worthy. In just a few uh, weeks, months, we'll come to Revelation chapter 7. And we'll get to verse 9. And we'll read John getting this vision of heaven itself and worship that is taking place. And listen to what he says. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a picture of all those who are in Christ. You are worthy. You are righteous. Oh, I don't mean that your actual actions... Make you worthy or make you righteous. It is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that makes you worthy and righteous. But as you put your faith in Christ, then God clothes you in his righteousness so that you are dressed in white. You are given the status of being reckoned righteous and holy in God's sight. And you say, that can't be me. That can't be me because I know me. And I would say to you, you're not remembering the gospel. You're not holding on to the gospel. The gospel says that we are worthy and we are declared righteous and holy, not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus' work being credited to us. And isn't that good news? Though our sins are as scarlet, they will be washed whiter than snow. The vilest offender, if they put their faith in Christ, has all of their sins washed away. Do we really believe that? If Charles Manson were to put his faith in Christ, he would have all of his sins washed away. If Jeffrey Dahmer put his faith in Christ, he would have had all of his sins washed away. If Adolf Hitler had put his faith in Christ, all of his sins would have been washed away. If Chris Harper puts his faith in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, you are not beyond the saving righteousness of God. And he credits you with that righteousness through your faith that he gives you in Christ. There's a second promise that he gives us. Not only the status of being clothed in white, but notice he'll give us the security of having a name that lasts forever. He says that if you're in Christ, that your name has been written, written in the book of life and it will never be blotted out. Earlier in our passage we read about our sins being blotted out, and here we're using that we're seeing that same word except it's in the reverse now. Our names are being written in the book of life. That register of all of God's people throughout history, and it's been written in indelible ink. And your name can never be removed from the book of life because it's God who's put it there. That ought to fill us with incredible peace. A sense of security in the moments when I can't feel that that could be true. When I can't see how that could be true. It is true because God's word says that it's true. Your name has been written in the book of life because of God's redeeming work for you. For you. And your name will remain in the book of life because of God's preserving work in keeping you. And then this last promise that we get... In verse 5, Jesus says, I will confess your name before my father and before his angels in heaven. Not only do we have the status of being washed white with the righteousness of Jesus and the security of having our names written in the book of life forever, but we have a sense of the commitment and intimacy of our Savior as he sees, as he shows us that this salvation is not impersonal. You are not just a name in a sea of general believers. If you are in Christ, then what we have here is the confession of Jesus that he will confess your name before his father and before the heavenly host. In fact, your name has been known before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us in Romans 8. When Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross, he had your personal name in his mind. When Jesus prayed to his father for his disciples and for the Christians who would come in the future, he had your name in his mind. When Jesus now sitting at the right hand of his father in heaven, ruling and reigning and is advocating with his father, it is your name that he has in his mind. And when Jesus returns again, he is coming for you. This is a picture of Jesus' commitment to us personally and intimately. He knows your name. And he confesses it to his father. I heard a story uh, recently. And apparently this story comes out of a book that's called Wake Up, You're Alive. uh, By uh, two men, a father and son, Arnold and Barry Fox. And in this book, they tell the true story of a man who had been in the Vietnam War. And as he was getting later in life, he decided to go visit the Vietnam Memorial that was in Washington, D.C. at that point. This man had been a team leader of a squad of soldiers in Vietnam whose job it was to go on jungle patrol. They went ahead of the rest of the soldiers and their job were to find all of the traps and to get rid of them. Uh, To uh, get rid of all of the mines and to go into the tunnels and to clear them out so that the soldiers who came behind them would be safe. And they saw and they experienced horrific things. And by the end of their tour of duty, every single man in the squad had died except for this man who was the leader. Most of his life, he dealt with what's called survivor's guilt. He actually had wished that he had died, rather than being the only person that survived. Eventually, he actually convinced himself that he was dead. Apparently, it's a known PTSD phenomenon. He decided to go to Washington, D.C. to visit the Vietnam Memorial. And he arrived, and you have it in your mind, it's that long black granite a monument with the names of all of those who died in Vietnam. And he had the list of all of the men in his unit that had died. And he began to go back and forth on the monument, and he had a piece of paper. And when he came to their, one of the names of his soldiers that had died, he would trace it onto the piece of paper so that he would have all of their names right off of the monument. And he came to the end of his list, and there was one name that he couldn't find. And he began to look up and down, back and forth again and again and again, and he couldn't find it. And eventually, one of the memorial attendants saw what was happening and came over to him and asked if he could help. And the man explained to him that he was looking for this one last name, but he couldn't find it. And so the attendant said, well, tell me the name and I'll look it up in our official records. And so he checked the official record book and the name wasn't there. And so he asked the man, are you sure that the name's correct? He said, yes, I'm sure. Are you sure that you've spelled it correctly? Because sometimes names are spelled differently and maybe the name is spelled differently. And he said, no, 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 I, I'm positive. I have the right name and it's spelled correctly. And I'm positive of that because it's my name. The attendant had seen this situation before. And so he knew how to answer the man He gently explained to the man, your name is not on the monument because you're not dead. You're alive. And all that remains is for you to leave this place and live. I wonder... If there are any here this morning that are suffering from PTSD. Post-traumatic sin disorder. Convinced that God could never love you or accept you. Never forgive you. Convinced in your mind that you're as good as dead. In God's sight. And apart from Christ. You're right. There is no life. But in Christ. Christ. There is sure and certain life, and Jesus says to us today, wake up and live. Remember the gospel. Keep it. Keep believing it. Hold on to it. Repent. Turn away from those things that lead to death and turn back to the Lord of life. And in those moments when you are doubting or when you need strength to believe and to pursue obedience in your life, remember who you are. You are clothed in white righteousness of Jesus. Your name has forever been written in heaven's book of life with indelible ink. And Jesus himself confesses your name before his father. So let's go out and live for him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us this letter to this church. There are some ways in which this place and these people and the geographical location and even the words that you are writing to them, it seems foreign to us because we seem so far removed from them. And yet, Father, there are so many ways that we can hear your words echoing into our own very souls. I pray you would cause us to wake up Help us to remember the Gospel. Help us to hold on to it. Especially in those moments when everything else is trying to get our hands free of the truth of Your Word and the wonder of Your amazing grace. Help us to repent and to turn again to You and again and again and again. We pray for Your Spirit to be at work enabling us to do these things. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew tells us that as Jesus and the disciples gathered together just before Jesus went to the cross, they were eating and Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you. In my Father's kingdom. Meditate, if you will, for a moment on this idea that Jesus confesses our names before the Father. Think about the reality of that. The resurrected, ruling, reigning King of Kings, Lord of Lords. At this very moment, if you are in Christ, is at the right hand of the Father. Confessing, declaring your name. He, she, is mine. That's what we remember as we come to this table. It was the Lord's body and His blood that enabled that to be the case. As He sacrificed Himself for us, as He gave Himself for us, to cleanse us, to blot out our sins and our transgressions. And as we are given faith by God Himself to put that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united to Christ by that faith. And now he says, you are mine and nothing can take you away. That's what we remember as we come to this table every single week. Jesus knows you and he says to you, you are mine. And he declares and confesses to his father, they are mine. They have been bought with a price. A price that nothing can outpay, not even our sin." Our own denomination's policy is for this table to be participated in by believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes sense, doesn't it? That we would partake in this and confess our faith in in this wonderful gospel message. And so if you are here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have confessed that faith, you have professed that faith uh, at a church that believes God's word is true, it could be Trinity or another church that is a true church of, uh, of God, then we would encourage you to eat and to drink and to be reminded of that wonderful truth of your Savior at this very moment, confessing your name before the Father and before the heavenly host that's not you this morning then we would invite you to allow the elements to pass you by and instead to use the time to pray and ask the lord to reveal these things to you there are some prayers at the back of our bulletin that you could use during this time as well let's pause now and let's ask the lord uh, to use this table to strengthen our faith and to cause us to live for him this week ahead let's pray our father we do thank you for the lord's supper we thank you for this means of grace We do believe in these wonderful truths of your word and as we partake in faith, trusting in Christ once again, we hear his words, you are mine. We are reminded of that great confession our Savior has of us being his before your throne. We pray that as we eat and drink in faith, that through the work of your spirit you would strengthen us. Help us to remember the gospel, to keep it, and to live lives of repentance. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. On the night on which he was